Hill 937, a steep, well-fortified pin on a map. The People's Army of Vietnam had it, and the U.S. Army wanted it. That's all a soldier on the ground needs to know, and that's all we know as we follow our one platoon through this one operation. Along the way, we get to know the sergeant and the squad leader, played by Stephen Weber and Dylan McDermott, respectively. But we get to know them fairly little compared to the rest of the platoon. There's Doc, the medic, played by Courtney B. Vance. There's Beanstalk and Boletsky and Motown. There's Languili, too, and you better say his name right. McDaniel has less than a month left on his tour. Each person gets a scene to better understand them and their motivations. There's a feeling of dread that pervades this film, though. It's a haunted house kind of dread. The kind of dread you feel when you spend an amount of time with characters you grow to like, who you're sure are going to meet a terrible end in movies like this. It's not going to go well on Hill 937. The futility of the repetition cements that. Attempt after attempt is made. There's napalm and rain. There's friendly fire. It's exhausting and terrifying. It's the tenth assault in the rain that takes Doc, the conscience of the film, off the board. Finally, the eleventh and final assault is mounted, overrunning the enemy positions and allowing Boletsky, Washburn, and Franz to reach the summit. But there's no joy in this victory, only fatigue and grief. I suppose what makes Hamburger Hill different from many other Vietnam War films is a sense of hopelessness that pervades the thing. There's wry humor in Full Metal Jacket, at least. And you could say Apocalypse Now is about just one or two people's psychological traumas. Platoon as Charlie Sheen. And as bad as things look, we don't lose all hope in those films, wouldn't you say? But after wave after wave of assaults upon the hill, as our soldiers are resisted, repelled, and reduced, it dawns on us, this really needs to matter. This better mean something in the end. The U.S. Army abandoned the hill soon after taking it, and there it is, the film's micro-telling of the macro story. The heroism and futility during the siege of Hill 937 is the Vietnam War in a nutshell. And maybe that's what's missing here, too. By sacrificing drama for the sake of realism, we are left feeling as empty and exhausted as those at the top of the hill at the end of the film. Because that's what's at the core of the thing. You get the sense that Hamburger Hill is really trying to say something with a hopelessness. Its message could simply be a reminder, a warning, and a question. What does it all mean? We've been up that hill ten times and they still don't think we're serious on today's friendly fire. Hamburger Hill. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that don't mean nothing, man. Not a thing. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. This is one of those hard war films that we get from time to time, right? Where it's gruesome and difficult and frustrating. 
Yeah. I think I was maybe extra frustrated by how unwilling the movie seemed to be to contextualize itself or try and say something bigger about the war. Oh, I kind of feel like that's the thing that I love about it. I feel like I hate the fact that they totally preached to us every time any two actors were talking. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so we begin. <laughs> I think I think what it was for me was that we just watched Torah, 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 and I got the bends going from everybody has two or more stars to like we meet one lieutenant. There's a private first class who lords it over everybody else. I'm a PFC. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's not, unlike a lot of Vietnam movies, there's not a big picture presented here, which is, I think, as Adam said, sort of its strength. We're just down with them. But I really felt like there was a ton of, uh, I, there were a lot of soliloquies. In this movie, I felt like that too. But like, I to me, they f seemed like they were coming from the characters' mouths and not from the film. Like, it wasn't the film trying to say something through a character as much as it was a character just saying a thing that they felt as a way of fleshing them out as a character. Boy, we are going to tangle today, <laughs> you and me. <laughs> Because uh, honestly, I mean, I, I have a feeling that this is going to be a thing with you. <laughs> I, I uh, uh, from the very start of this movie, my feeling about the first half of this film is that it seemed like a um, it, it seemed like a community theater play. I really felt the hand of a writer <laughs> in every word that everybody said, including the. It, it, not just the soliloquies, but also just like the normal attempts at portraying three guys having a jocular conversation felt very writerly to me <laughs> and felt like acted in a in a in a mannered way. I really I really felt like I was off 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 Broadway. You thought Max Fisher from Rushmore was writing it? For the first long bit of this movie, I felt like it was one of these one helicopter Vietnam films where they only had, they only could afford <laughs> one helicopter. And so every time they're yeah. trying to portray like a big movement of helicopters, you just see one at a time. Here's one. Oh, there's another one. Oh, there it is. You know, just like, yeah, right. One helicopter. Then this movie at about the midpoint completely turned on its turned on an axis and somehow became a very different movie. Um, but yeah, the, the first 45 minutes to an hour, I, I just, I felt like I've seen versions of house at Pooh corner that were more, um, more engaging for me house at Pooh corner as put on by the shoreline, like children's theater. Well, we've skipped right to the <laughs> review portion of the show. <laughs> I, wow. I give it one hot dog. <laughs> Are you really feeling the proximity effect of this film to other films that we've watched lately? Nope. Does that nope. I, I, I heard it. I, uh, there, there are quite a few scenes, for instance, where the frame, uh, the filmmakers were super conscious of the frame. And so we're watching somebody in the, in the middle of the frame. And then another actor comes in in the foreground 
and then a third actor comes in relative to the second actor in the foreground, creating a perfect triangular shaped vector, drawing the eye of the viewer to the, and it's just like, it just felt like a film studies thing where the people took it, took their instructions too literally. And there were just so many frames where I was like, good job, I guess John if that's what you're going composition. for. <laughs> I mean, but composition that's, that's in service of nothing other than to John's show the guy on the film crew <laughs> ripping up the marks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you know what? Like, let it happen. Let it happen a little we, bit. We won't have any spike tape on this production. No, thanks. It was, it was not just, it was, I guess it was the fact that it kept piling on these compositions, these, um, kind of cliched, we don't quite have a like Jewish guy, Italian guy, but pretty close. We got the redneck guy. We've got the, we've got the pussy hound. It seems like everybody in this, uh, unit is the, the Brooklyn guy. There's a lot of Brooklyn guys. I was put off. And I continue yeah. to be put off until they get to the hill. Everything up until that point just felt like, meh. How much did you know about this particular engagement going into the film, John? Zero. Okay. Because I, cause I didn't either. And I read, it, I, read, I read about it afterwards. And it seemed like maybe a 1987 film-going audience would have understood... Um, with more recency, like the kind of the way in which this film, this this particular battle was emblematic of something about Vietnam, which is we we got all these guys killed to take this hill and then the hill doesn't have a strategic like they don't talk about that in the movie at all, like that there's actually no reason to take this hill other than there are some VC up there. Yeah, weirdly, the film ends on that poem about like don't forget your fallen heroes poem but when it really should have ended with a title card that said one week later we abandoned the hill and it never mattered it had no strategic significance but we immediately handed it back over to whoever was there did 1987 moviegoer know that no or? no i don't think so i mean we in 1987 people understood that the entire Vietnam war had been somewhat of an exercise in futility, but I think, I think hamburger Hill itself was some kind of turning point in the way the war was being conducted. The idea up until that point was we fight the enemy where they are. And so they're everywhere. And what we do is just go where they are and fight them with the idea that we're going to demoralize them and defeat them. We're just fighting a war of attrition. It's, there's no battle line. And after Hamburger Hill and the recognition that we were just throwing soldiers into a hole, I think it changed the way the war was conducted. It's so weird to leave that out of a movie called Hamburger Hill. It is. Why? I mean, and they could have put it in as like just a little, a little scroll at the end of the movie and it would have made the movie better, I think. That's what, that's what I was saying. I was frustrated with. Yeah. Right. You were, you were missing the context on either side of it. Is that context provided by other films though? Like does Platoon and Full Metal Jacket so strongly present the idea of that futility that a Hamburger Hill that comes out only months after those films doesn't need to do that? We already know it. I think that Platoon 
is trying to do a different thing. And it like Platoon has plenty of context. Like we understand, you know, where Charlie Sheen is from and and like what kind of a guy he was before he enlisted and like why everybody else thinks he's an idiot for having chosen to do that. And then we watch him go on this journey. This movie is about a, like a real battle. Yeah, right. Platoon is, is about the entire Vietnam War. And Full Metal Jacket is about some other war because it sure as shit didn't seem like it was set in Vietnam. When they get to that <laughs> town, it felt like it was Mosul. Uh, <laughs> even though we haven't watched that movie yet. But Adam, all these movies were in production at the same time. So I don't think that Hamburger Hill was was consciously thinking, well, I'll let those other movies do the heavy lifting of examining Vietnam. I didn't make that case as a as a conscious decision. I'm just trying to put myself in the mind of a film goer in 1986 and 87. Like, do you have a, like, is that... Is that already ingrained when you're going to go watch war films in 87 after having seen Platoon and Full Metal Jacket? Do you like, is that already there for you in a way that isn't as we watch these films in 2019? I feel like that was the hot moment, right? The late 80s was when we were finally ready to watch some Vietnam movies that interrogated the war and our conduct there. And all of these movies are members of the same family, which are let's make some brutal movies now. Um, let's make some casualties of war and see how much Americans can take. And it's also a moment in American cinema where like people getting blown up is being employed much more graphically. A lot of the, a lot of these movies, I mean, even in, in um, apocalypse now, you don't see anybody's guts. You don't see anybody's head get blown off. You see water Buffalo guts. You see water Buffalo neck guts. Those don't qualify as guts? No, I don't think. Well, maybe. But you don't see like, you don't see like. You don't see intestines. Yeah. You don't see awful the way you see awful in Hamburger Hill. You see it in like the first two minutes of the movie. There's a guy with his small intestines pouring out of his belly. But there's always been a war movie shorthand for a lot of this stuff. But I think the, the lexicon of Vietnam war movie shorthand was still being written at this point. If you put a lot of this stuff in a contemporary in a war movie about Vietnam now, it would just feel like come on, come up with something else. Yeah. Like this seems like a cliche because it is the headwater of so, so many of those clichés. Yeah, but we're still in an era where putting in 1987 uh a movie like this that is totally soundtracked throughout uh every time some 60s hit comes on it still would be evocative then instead of feeling corny. That animal song is great though. It's a great animal song. You got to get out of that place. It's right there in the yeah. title. They want out <laughs> of that place. That place. Yeah. Everybody shoots at me, especially you grunts. You know, there are a lot of those early battle scenes in this movie where, for instance, when they're up on the hillside on the other side of that river and they start taking mortal mortar fire and the first 20 mortar rounds land on the opposite side of the river and they just they're sort of walking that mortar forward yeah and the mortar is like just gratuitously blowing up civilians on the other side it was a confusing scene i was like are they shooting the civilians like why are they blowing up over there the civilians are getting blown up and it really felt like 
oh, well, this movie needs a reason to show some hurt civilians to get us feeling something, to get us on the path to somewhere. But during that scene, all of our guys up on the side of the hill just start shooting and looking, surveying the set across that river valley where whoever the bad guys are, are walking those mortar rounds forward. There is no place you, it's just, you can, you can see no place where there there's anybody would be in even gun range. And our guys are just like, just unloading bullets at nothing. I, I can't imagine any film goer that would look at that and go like, Oh, they're shooting at a bad guy. They're just shooting bullets. And it felt so much like movie, like we need to see these guys in combat but we're not ready to put them in combat. And so they're just shooting bullets across a river Valley while we set off some explosions. It just felt like not real and not good because it didn't hold up to the geography, like the geographical test of like, who are you shooting at? Who's in charge here? Ain't you? (laughs) Boy, I just felt so differently about the film. And I think it's, I mean, I get it. I get your perspective. I recognize it. Yeah. Uh huh. But the thing that I appreciated most about the film was that you don't ever get to be the general with the star. You get to be the grunt. I don't want to be the grunt, Adam. I know you don't, but I that's wanna... the point. That's the <laughs> that point of this. That is not the point of this. Like, you're going to put on the boots and you're going to be the grunt and you're going to fight for a hill that you don't understand the, the strategic value of because that's your fucking job. And that's what war is. Now we're talking and about war the, is so dumb. We're talking about the second half, hills. though. You're talking about once we get to the hill. Now, once we get to the hill, I got a different story to tell about this movie. But before we get to the hill, it's just it's some community ass theater. You don't you don't think it's uh, Torah Torah Torahing at all, and it's run up to the hill. No, I feel like there are some dudes firing blanks while we get to know which one's the hick, which one has his girlfriend's picture in his wallet. We get to see Dylan some McDermott is really trying to Lee Marvin, his helmet. And yeah. Oh, his helmet. Not doing a great job of it. His helmet is always, uh, uh, this has happened scans. in a hundred war films, John, and you saved the 101st <laughs> for this kind yeah, of criticism for the 101st airborne, yeah. the screaming chickens represented Whoa. here. What do you think about that? Ben? That, that's, I, that's a total accident. That's amazing. <laughs> 101st episode, 101st airborne. Wow. But then there's the guy from wings. Who's like, also a hard-bitten sergeant. I liked the relationship between the sergeants. I liked that they were friends. Did not think Steven Weber had this gear in him. But he he did. Wow. And Great then, Steven Weber film. You know, Doc from The Cosby Show was, was chewing up the scenery. Uh, and he had glasses, which is a great way to establish a character. Can you imagine casting and directing Don Cheadle in his first film and not knowing you have a Don Cheadle on your hands. Oh, the thing is, as soon as he's on the screen, you know you have a Don Cheadle on your hands. He's criminally underused in this film. He is, yeah. Yeah, he has about a quarter as many lines as would be minimum for a Don Cheadle. Yeah. L- later on in his career. Contractually, <laughs> you would be obligated to give him more <laughs> down the road. In Ocean's Eleven yeah. and Twelve, he's criminally overused. Mm. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, that's right. You need, I said it. You need to find Don Cheadle equilibrium you do. in your Don Cheadle film. Crash. The movie Crash is where you find Don Cheadle equilibrium. That, that film is just criminal, period. <laughs> <laughs> Irrespective of how Don Cheadle is used in it. But when they get to the hill, something happens to this movie 
and it becomes a great war movie. And I don't know what happens because it's the same movie. It's not one of those movies where it's like, well, that was a shitty movie and now it's a good movie. I feel like the hill scenes lobotomized me to the first part of the film because I I, I just don't understand where you're coming from when you criticize the first half. It's almost like we saw different films. Yeah, we did. I saw the film Hamburger Hill. Yeah, and, and you, I and I hit fast forward yeah, on my remote. Yeah, you in looked 30 up from, second your, increments. from your Sergeant Rock comic books long enough to get uh, who the comic the stars were. That's fair, you Adam. Like, you missed all the topless babes. Yeah, a couple of topless babes. I, I do like. A uh, yeah, shared bathtub. That, that's how you know you're close. That's right. That's how you know it's Vietnam. Yeah. Some guys said Diddy Mao a couple of times. So uh, on a scale of one to five soapy boobs. <laughs> <laughs> one to five or one to five pairs? Because if we're, if there's That's only for you to decide. only five soapy boobs. I don't know. That's a <laughs> Vietnam uh, whorehouse. I, I'm not sure I want to visit. <laughs> Plausible though. But the fighting on the hill. And I, the thing is, I found the fighting up and to the hill in this movie unrealistic and and like almost insulting. And then all of a sudden we're in a movie that has 30 helicopters. How does a movie get two F fours there? We've seen yeah. a lot of Vietnam movies where they didn't come up with two F fours to, to strafe the hill a bunch of times. Like that's impressive shit. They're setting off napalm. It's so, it's sort of impressive, but it actually, there actually is a problem with the F fours. John, uh oh, here it comes. Oh, a pedant on the internet noticed. Oh, are we there already? None of the F 4 jet aircraft that, quote, bombed the hill numerous times had any bombs on them. Any ordnance on an F 4 is visible. Those pictured had none. Not even wing fuel tanks. Wow. Dogged. You know, James Karabatsos is the writer of this film. Yeah. A Vietnam War veteran. So if you have any problems with the uh, with the truthfulness or or how any of these scenes are depicted in terms of whether or not they're they're correct, yeah, in your mind you have to take it up with him. He well, was there, man. I don't want to take it up with him. You weren't there. Just because you were there doesn't mean you're a good writer of there. Mm, right? Yeah. Right? right. I mean, you know, you, you got me there. <laughs> you were there for the indie rock irony wars of the two thousands, but. What's your screenplay like? You were there as an excuse for a lot of shit. There's a lot of there. There's a lot of the production of this movie that um, that stands on the stilts of. Uh, it was written <laughs> wow. by it was written by Vietnam vets. There were Vietnam vets used as as technical advisors. There are a lot of Vietnam vets that ride for this movie. Yeah, but none of that makes it a good movie. This is uh, the last thing Jim Carabatos wrote before a TV movie he wrote in 2001, which th is the last thing he wrote, period. Was that House at Pooh Corner? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on. Show some respect. We're a respectful show here. This movie opens with a long, super long pan across the Vietnam Veteran Memorial. And... I, do, I couldn't decide at the time whether I felt like it was gratuitous or, but, but like respectful or pandering. 
I think it's very interesting that the very first shot in the film is of the Capitol building. It is not the war memorial. That's right. Shot number one. Capitol building. Yep. Because this movie is in the family of Vietnam films that is, that at the very core of it is the that hoary old criticism that we could have won this war if it weren't for the civilians back home. There's an awful lot of preachy dialogue about how the long hairs and the hippies are spitting on us when we get back to the airports. And a lot of that's been debunked, you know, that soldiers came home and got dog shit thrown at them by cute co-eds. And there's an awful lot of that in this movie that again, feels pandering to that MIA POW crowd yeah, there's definitely there's that guy that's like my girlfriend's gonna stop writing to me because everybody she goes to college with told me it was immoral. Yeah, all of the Ben Harrison's parents at Berkeley who are <laughs> throwing dog shit at soldiers. But yeah. you know, like that. Yeah, stuff- I can I can actually confirm that some of that did go down because my mom was engaged in a lot of it. That's yeah. actually yeah. how she met my dad when he cycled back to the world. She uh, she threw poop at him and-, and he was like, "Hey, baby." Yeah, he fell in love. She has long, (laughs) straight hair all the way down to her butt. Love at first poo. You know, 1987, there was still a real, like, that was maybe peak Vietnam vet on a Harley Davidson with a handkerchief wrapped around his head and a leather vest that said POW MIA. Doing that that late 80s revisionism of we would have won that thing if it weren't for those damn communists in the State Department. Read pussyfootin' Democrats and hippie co-eds. And that stuff, that sticks in my craw, too. I don't think that's the main theme of this movie, but it definitely is a vein running through it. And it's a vein you don't see in Platoon, because Platoon was written by a hippie before he became a Castro apologist. (laughs) And a Putin (laughs) accolade. Yeah, and a, a Putin bootlicker. But that whole like this movie this this movie is beloved by Vietnam vets thing that has that's a that's code for a lot I think code for a certain a certain amount of like here's a flag up your ass Ooh. <laughs> until we get to the hill until we get to Hamburg the titular hill the made titular out of hamburger hill. yeah <laughs> and then it becomes a freaking great war movie. Like it's great those battle scenes and and I was I was mad enough at it that I was like are these battle scenes really good or am I just like was I just bored enough that now I'm now I'm getting some fighting and I'm into it but no they that holds up that feels real it feels and I and I started to care about the characters like it becomes a good movie all the stuff about them before all of the little all the all the like that's a hell of a combination stuff that we get at the beginning it all like clicked I didn't want him to die. I wanted Dylan McDermott <laughs> to keep being handsome. I didn't want him to stop being handsome. He stopped. He even, even Dylan McDermott's handsomeness gets covered with mud. Didn't think it was possible. I, Adam is so mad. He doesn't know where to start. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm incredulous. I'm not mad. I, yeah, just, I'm really surprised. This is not how I expected this episode to go. <laughs> what was your expectation? That would be a, a mutual celebration. No, not that. But this just to call it formula would be pejorative. But there is a formula to these films that this film prescribes to the ascribes to get to know your soldiers before you watch them die on the hill 
type of movie. Right. And I don't see how this film is any different from a lot of others in that way. But you're making the case that it is. And I'm not agreeing with that. Right. That's, That's what's happening in my mind right now. I don't think I'm making the case that it's different or that it even fails at that. But just that I saw the... I saw the matrix it's, it's not, it's not even, it's not even that it's, that it was, you take the red pill, you turn off hamburger Hill and you go back to platoon where you belong. Part of it is I just didn't believe the, I didn't feel like the dialogue felt real. The dialogue can be super corny and still feel real. There's a moment where somebody, where, where a soldier goes, you know, we're not here to ask the questions. We're here to answer them. And you can, you can, you already know what he's going to say. And we don't start fights. We finish them. We finish them. That's what he said. Right. There's a Courtney B. Vantification of his dialogue that really, like, this is the second lobotomy for me, is like, he makes it work. And I believe him, even though it's corny as hell, some of the things that he's saying. I would agree with that. I mean, I think the the problem I have with the first... it's like f- the first like 40% of the movie is is pre-Hill. And I don't feel like, like Courtney B. Vance is like the exception where it seems like it's trying to establish these characters and help us understand the dynamics of this squad. And I just didn't feel like I got to know any of them but Courtney B. Vance, you know? You know what it is? The first 40 minutes of this film, if you took the first 40 minutes of this film and the first 40 minutes of Operation Dumbo Drop and you swapped them. <laughs> You'd be you, like, why are there tits in this Disney film? You would not. There would you would you would have you know the characters in Operation Dumbo Drop and care about them more than you do the characters in Hamburger Hill. Yeah, like they like two guys go off to a whorehouse and then do some whoring and leave. I'll never get the image of Danny Glover and Ray Liotta (laughs) and those soapy tits (laughs) in that jacuzzi together in Operation Dumbo Drop. Like, there's no conflict in that scene. Like, one of them doesn't get rough or, you know, one of them doesn't catch an STI. Like, like nothing happens, you know? Like, it's it's characterization without any of the frisson that we need to actually understand the, who these guys are. Where's the frisson, Adam? That's what Ben and I are saying. Frisson. They do a little to establish the lieutenant as like like officious and bureaucratically oriented. That's like all we ever know about him. And it like like we have the later scene where he calls in the the helicopter strike that gets a bunch of his guys killed, but it doesn't really seem like it's his fault. Nope, it doesn't. I feel like I am fucking buku dinky dow right now. <laughs> it's only halfway through that scene that you even realize it's the lieutenant you're dealing with because he right. just, you don't. <laughs> yeah, th- he's covered in mud at that point. <laughs> he shows up a lot in this movie and you forget he's the lieutenant because he's given so little to do. Very interested in what your review of this is going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be buku dinky dow is what it is. <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. 
Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. You do get that gallery of familiar soldiers. You get the short timer. Mm-hmm. You get the. He was great. You get the. Uh, you get the most Italian soldier ever depicted on film. Yeah. <laughs> whose name means noodles. <laughs> <laughs> what do you th- look? Here's here's a component that we haven't discussed about the first half of the film that I think is one of its strengths is this film leans into race a lot and why a black soldier is there versus why a white soldier might be. Was there anything good in those conflicts but that's, or worthwhile? That's also true of this whole, this whole era, this whole genre, right? Platoon has a, a, like all of that same kind of, uh, like interrogation. So your problem with this is that it's derivative and not that it exists. No, 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 no. Not that it's derivative because I feel like they're made at the same time. But what platoon does is give you five guys that you learn about and care about that have different personalities that have different responses to being black in Vietnam. So there's, you know, there's a righteous guy that that's against the whole operation. There are some go along to get along guys. There are some kind hearted guys Doc is given all of that. Yeah. He has to be the guy that does it all. He's the he's he's on the team, but he's against the war, but he's for the he's for military discipline. Like Doc bounces around seven different characters. He's the one that's like don't, you know, don't laugh when I tell you to brush your teeth. Yeah. But at the same time he's the one that's like this isn't my war, this isn't our war. I think it's interesting to have made Doc the doctor versus another grunt because everyone, regardless of race, needs him on the battlefield and must respect him in a way that if he were just any other black soldier, I don't think he'd be given that kind of respect. We get a little bit of the sort of like uh, the, the fact that the black soldiers have something in common with one another that that transcends their rank um a few different you know that particularly that time uh where they where they kind of get into that it don't mean nothing um right uh, like healing process uh that i think that stuff is affecting you probably thought it was dumb because i thought it was cool was was that scene where uh (laughs) where motown was telling mcdaniel about 
how hard it is to get used to normal life going back home because you can't stop saying motherfucker no, to your mom at I, the Thanksgiving table. I thought that was cool. As a comparison to how hard it is to get Vietnam out of your mind when you go back home, I thought that was really affecting and a deft touch. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It was good. It was a little, it, it felt like... I thought it sucked. It felt a little bit like uh, like maybe going back to Louisiana and, and buying a buying a shrimp and boat. Shrimp and oh, God. <laughs> I knew it. But yeah. Yeah, no, that was I mean there there are there are nice moments. There are nice moments, but they stand in bold they, relief. They don't make up a strong half of a film. Right. That's mm. right. And we do care about Doc a lot, but yeah. uh you know, Don Cheadle's right there. He could have a conscience too. He could be something other than just a like a blank slate. Yeah, he's he's really a filler soldier. And especially because he survives to the end, you don't really know him at that point. No, we don't know where he's right. from. He's never said a single thing about himself or his opinions. Yeah. Like Motown and Mac both have elements to their characters, and he really doesn't. Maybe it's trying to say something with that. <laughs> I am trying yeah. to write a film paper know, over here. This C minus paper that you're working on. Would, John, would you turn down the music? I'm trying to write here. Hey, come on, Adam. God, John, the just trying to provide, John's the worst we're roommate. To, we're trying to provide some frisson for uh, for you to write that paper. Stop being such a grind, man. This party's going off. You know what? Someone's going to ride your face down a stairwell. You keep pissing people off at this college, John. Believe me. <laughs> it happened. Johnny, I forget his name. What did you guys think of the uh, of the scoring in this movie? It's like very, Glass. very different Philip Glass scoring. I, did, I wasn't really sure like what motivated it a couple of times. Like There are several charges up the hill, and occasionally one will be accompanied by this really weird <laughs> experimental music. And, but a lot of the time it's not, you know? There there, there were sound effects that were a, almost a little bit like there will be blood. Things added into the war stuff. The sound of a strange, that strange snare drum that opens the film and it kind of reappears as a as like a war effect. Enough that it stood out. Enough that it wasn't just like, hmm, that's a weird gun. It's not like the military like marching band snare that is accompanied by brass instruments. No, it's like it's, just like, it's like a different sound. A different sound that feels like feels like it's meant to ramp up the tension, ramp yeah. up the discomfort. Maybe if it had happened a little bit less and I hadn't noticed it, it would have I think it was doing that job. It just it just was too much. I never got that non-diegetic sound feeling from it. I never got the Johnny Greenwood vibes that you guys did. Yeah, because you had your pants down around your ankles through the, this whole movie. <laughs> Look, I prefer a Jerry Goldsmith score to a war film. I've said that before. I don't think this stuck out to me in, in any particular way as a movie score. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm someone who who frequently notices that stuff, but... This one felt baked into me. I thought it was a, a great score. Like it was maybe my favorite part of the movie for how unusual it was, but it, it was 
super unconventional in my wow. experience of it. Yeah, I just I never felt like it was a character in the film. Yeah, I, I my favorite character in the movie, not my guy, but my favorite character was the Spencer Davis group singing "Give Me Some Lovin'" during the hot tub scene. <laughs> All roads lead back to the hot tub. <laughs> Are we having a tough time talking about this? It's a tough movie to talk about. And and we've seen plenty of movies where it feels like the second unit director is making a different movie than the first unit director, like, like uh-huh. Predator, right? At the beginning of Predator, that scene where they raid the, the rebel base and it's a bunch of like super corny Schwarzenegger lines and people getting blown up and jumping on trampolines. And it's just like, this is terrible. And then predator, (laughs) then the predator arrives and the movie is transformed. And three quarters of the way through the movie, you are in like a super duper good psychological drama and war complex war movie. This is similar to that. It feels like the war movie stuff is being filmed by a different director and then i realized it wasn't it was just that we had one director that was good at filming war movie stuff and not super good at making a movie about real people who had real personalities and motivations and i feel like a lot of that is in the script one thing that made this film feel like the stage play that you were describing it as is that it does predator credits at the end did you did you stick around for the credits, John? I know you I famously did. did not for Predator, <laughs> but they did the little video capsule and the and the credit at the bottom. Yeah, that little moment with each main character. Yeah. That was a Predator thing. It's yeah. the same year. It's amazing. Predits. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. I feel like I'm going to come in for a uh, for a ration of shit from the. From the people that are like, this was the most accurate looking Vietnam movie ever made. And I do not disagree. I loved the I loved the fighting. Interesting order of operations for John Irvin's uh, directoral career. He went from Raw Deal to Hamburger Hill. Raw Deal, the Schwarzenegger <laughs> film. Was that like some kind of road uh, roadhouse movie where where uh, there was an arm wrestling contest and. Somebody drove a truck into a swimming pool or something? What was Raw Deal? Yeah, it was all of those things, John. <laughs> Every single one of those things. <laughs> Did he have an orangutan as a as a sidekick in Raw Deal? Yeah. Hey, that was it. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you believe all those things are true. Are you tapping out of this show? No, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm all in right. this for another ten years. All right, good. You've got ten years of me. And good. then you gotta find a replacement. Good. You're irreplaceable. I think it'll be me that has to be replaced in 10 years. What mean irreplaceable, John? (laughs) It means when your two co-hosts bag on you an entire episode till you want to leave, doesn't really matter. Is this what getting bagged on looks like? I love this. This is great. I feel like I've gotten way worse baggings. In the past, if if we're talking about getting bagged on for an entire, we make episode. fun of you because you don't like or listen to popular music. That, that's that's the reason for the bagging. Yeah, you get tea bagged, Ben. <laughs> Gross. Adam, just getting full on. Put in I a do bag. like and listen to popular music. My, I I would wager that the music I listen to is more popular than the music you listen to. Mm. He may have you there. Yeah. You don't listen to Cardi B, do you, Adam? Yeah. No. Ben does. Yeah. Yeah. 
indie rock, the the least popular genre of music. <laughs> I wear bloody shoes. Adam's Gen X, the forgotten generation. And he's young Gen X, <laughs> young enough to like Hamburger Hill. <laughs> now that we've sufficiently scorched the earth of the first half, half of this film, are we going to talk about the Hamburger Hill portion of the film? Yes, let's do. Because we should. Mud is really like one of the main characters in the Hamburger Hill portion of the film. This is this is the Mel Gibsoniest part of the film. Yeah, but <clears throat> but I never felt for a single second that the violence was gratuitous. No, I felt like they were getting they were getting shit canned, and it felt absolutely believable. And you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of NVA faces in this movie. They aren't just an invisible set of machine guns from behind a wall of jungle. We see them. We see them get hurt. We see their strategy. We see their tactic. Yeah, the boy. We that, see them win. The moments of futility that feel like they're, they're the most pronounced are those moments where they call in the airstrike and then right on cue, they they hide back into the bunker to avoid being bombed. The bombs do nothing except scorch the earth and then they're right back into action. Right. Over and over again, we get those scenes. They are shooting down at like a 50 degree angle. Yeah. <laughs> which is a pretty good advantage if you have a machine gun. Sure is. There's one of the charges where it is so slippery that it like it almost makes the case like, oh, they could have they could have gotten all the way to the top on this one. They were almost if it there. had just been twenty yeah. percent less slippery. It was a rainy day and that was the thing that defeated them. At that at that point in the movie, I really wanted them to just keep sliding all the way down the hill and go back to go back to the Air Force base, <laughs> they, they're, wherever. They're in Iowa when they yeah. get to the bottom. <laughs> yeah, Ben's at the bottom of the hill. Like I wore dress shoes, I can't do it. <laughs> I really did. I felt so much frustration for them at that point. Just like you guys, seriously. Yeah. Let me uh, let me jump ahead and tell you how this war ends. You all go home anyway, and they know it too. You know they they are they're. They confide that in one another. They know that there's no point to this. How do you make the decision between uh, firebomb and bomb bomb in a situation like this? What kind of strategy is involved? Like when you're calling in an airstrike, do you get to request the type of ordinance that's dropped? Probably. You don't see that here, and I don't think I've ever seen that in a war film. Where the guy on the ground is like, bunker busters! Yeah, because it seems like what they're dropping on the top of the hill is insufficient for the job. And everyone knows it. Right, it's just it's just incendiaries. Yeah, they need to blow up the hill but they and also, not light it on fire. They also have artillery and can call in our artillery as well. And they do many times in the movie call in artillery, but that's not able to reach the top of Hamburger Hill for some reason. Yeah. I don't know. They definitely could have elucidated that a little bit better. The, because I mean, all the Iwo Jima movies we've watched spend some time talking about how we just pulverized this island for days and then sent troops to it and there it was still capable fighting forces hiding in the tunnels like as if the proper order is like soften it up right. before we send our guys in right yeah and and it seems like they like come up with the idea like oh i got it 
Like, I know we just climbed halfway up this hill, but what if we had some helicopters come in and shoot the guys that are trying to kill us? Yeah, you know how you get the higher ground? You get into the air. That's the most, uh, maybe one of the most devastating moments in the movie after they get to the top of the hill and then some helicopters show up and land. And it's like, wool, wool. Why did we have to, (laughs) couldn't we have just come on helicopters? I thought you were going to say the friendly fire moment. Oh, that was awful. That was awful, and I think that's real. I wonder how hard as a soldier it is to suspend the instinct to shoot back right. in a moment At like that. At your own helicopter. Yeah. Well, how much the your instinct is to go to whatever base those helicopters were based at. Yeah. And find those Blow dudes. Blow up a latrine. And that's right. Unload belt-fed ammo into all their computers. Yeah. That's right. I always thought the mine was the perfect weapon. <laughs> that part was hard yeah and you can see they do a great job of putting us in the helicopter yeah and recognizing that they're flying fast they're coming over there they got they're also scared of getting shot down and they're just firing willy-nilly and everybody down below is covered with mud and it's and you just see like somebody miss a miscommunicated where the battle lines were and and again, that was another scene where they were almost going to take the hill. They were right. Yeah. They were right at the top, and um, and then they lost fifty guys. F-N-G. Now, in actual fact, the assault on Hamburger Hill, uh, something like seventy or eighty American troops were killed, and. I think we see a lot more people killed in this movie yeah. than were actually killed. I don't fault a movie for that. I have some statistics here. U.S. losses during the 10-day battle totaled 72 killed and 372 wounded. To take the position, the 101st Airborne eventually committed five infantry battalions and 10 batteries of artillery. In addition, the U.S. Air Force flew 272 missions to expand more than 500 tons of ordnance. Whoa. That's that's from Wikipedia. Whoa. Yeah. A costly battle. 630 Vietnamese dead, which is pretty wild. Yeah, a lot of those probably to the artillery and napalm, but... Yeah, like... They found them like buried in the tunnels and stuff. So 400 American casualties. I guess that's a, that's believably depicted in the, in the movie. Yeah. You see a lot of guys get hit, but you don't, you don't watch them. It's not always clear whether they're, they're KIA or just badly wounded. Doc had a pretty good death scene. This is Courtney B. Vance's first movie also. And he's just one of those actors that I, I always love seeing. I wish I, I wish I wish we had more Courtney B. Vance movies. He does a great job in Red October. Yeah, yeah he was I love fun. him in that movie. The ultimate unwatched Friendly Fire movie. Mm. The <laughs> idea that you Ding Dongs did that over at your Star Trek podcast, and we haven't watched it over here, it gets not less infuriating every week. <laughs> it's, it's on the list. <laughs> Yeah, you just hey, why don't you try rolling the die right, John? Uh, oh, mm-hmm. 
I see where this <laughs> episode's like it's going. your fault. <laughs> I'm a salesman. These feet are my life. I thought that the lieutenant had a pretty good death scene, too, that, like, for all the times we've had a, a guy who is in shock and doesn't realize he's missing a, wo- uh, a limb, like, this was, like, a pretty good version of that. It was. Because no one had noticed that. I noticed it. I knew his arm was gone because of the way it was framed. Um, all the vectors. You're always making sure that a person's limbs are all there. Because it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't see one of his limbs. There's a reason for that. And then, and then the camera comes around and it's like, okay. You telegraphed that a little bit, filmmakers. But, I, but you got to. You got to telegraph it. Otherwise, we had already forgotten who the lieutenant was or why we cared about him. Eden has a really great scene where he's teaching the uh, FNGs about filling out the forms <laughs> and how crucial it is to uh, to donate into the retirement fund or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that moment. You'd want to talk about futility in that first half of the film. Like, that's a big, big part of it. The way that scene ends where he says, are there any questions? And you expect all the all the soldiers to just be like, Bleh. and they actually crowd around the table as the camera flies uh. back. I, I wasn't sure what message that was sending or what I was supposed to think about it, but it seems like all those guys bought insurance. Lieutenant Eden is really Jesse Eisenberging around in this movie, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> One of the parts of the film where I really agree with you on the whole proselytizing of a screenwriter is the moment where Franz uh, interacts with the TV reporter. Yeah. Like, you haven't earned the right to be here. Yeah. I felt that. I felt that. I didn't like that TV reporter either. No, I mean, the moment was correct and it felt real to its moment, but it also felt like a turn to camera. Well, the proselytizing, I think, irritated you because because you had subliminally picked up on the six other times it happens in the movie, and you were already pre-irritated. Yeah, you had basically you had some histamine in your system. You were ready to sneeze. You know, you can still get pregnant <laughs> from pre-irritation. That's right. You can get it from a toilet seat, which is the first mm. half of this movie. So you in a hot tub that somebody had been irritated in earlier yeah. that yeah. day. That yeah. was me, Ben. I was with uh, I was with a bunch of soapy poops. Yeah. <laughs> you already you already had the herpes, Adam. You just didn't have a sore yet. Mm. You would be irritated if you were in a hot tub with some soapy boobs. <laughs> well, in, Adam would in be irritated. In what way do you mean that? He'd be irritated because he's happily married. Exactly. So it would be frustrating. <laughs> yeah. To have to bow out. I am I am devoted to one pair of soapy boobs only. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't Those say of my wives. soapy boobs they were. <laughs> ben, what are you trying to say? I'm just saying your irritation got me pregnant. Your open soapy boob relationship that you have at home. Don't put that on me, man. Here's here's the reason I felt like the characters talking about uh, getting poopy flung at them and stuff wasn't necessarily the like I I think the film to me it seemed like the film was more neutral on those things than the characters some of the individual characters were and I think it's because of the the discussions of race being in there also like the it doesn't seem ideological about 
either issue when they're both there at the same time. Does that make any sense? Yeah, but I think some of that is that we're living in a time now where the uh, the consensus among people sort of under the age of 40 is that we never have had a national conversation about race that was frank or confrontational. And we have like that at the time was it was an uncomfortable. Those were uncomfortable scenes for film going audiences, but the, not that they weren't accustomed to them. We'd been having frank conversations about race in America and race in Vietnam and race in the military for decades and decades. So I think you could make a you could make an argument in a Vietnam movie that the experience was very different for black soldiers than it was for white soldiers and still have the movie be kind of jingoistic about how soldiers were I mean one of the things it does is unite white and black soldiers in their common um ex- or or I'm I'm sorry in their very different experience of returning home but a common experience of returning home to a world that doesn't understand them. And the black soldiers are saying, we come back to our communities and we are able to wear our uniforms with pride. And that's the one thing you can't take away from us because your stupid white hippie culture is the thing that is causing you a problem, but we don't get spit on in our own town. That's interesting, but it was also that that was being discussed and described in the the world of the eighties, but I see what, I mean, I see the point you're making that the, the movie isn't just one sided. I really feel like the, the jingoism of it is given an exclamation point by the, by ending on that poem, that poem being one that does, and it's very, you know, it's subtle. It's not, they're not banging your head with it, but the poem is, is basically saying these were good boys and remember them for their, their valiant fight, despite your contempt for the war and the military and everything else. It was a a theme at the time, which was, okay, maybe you didn't like the war, but you can't go against the soldiers. And it was the first time we heard that, which now is the primary pushback. Anytime we have a complaint against American war making, is that there's some incredible difference between critic or or rather you cannot criticize the war because you're criticizing the soldiers and the soldiers are innocent because they're valiant right they they're answering the call to serve the country right no matter what the country asked them to do the reason that that was a conversation that was brand new at this time was that prior to Vietnam nobody would have criticized the American military and making that distinction was a reaction to American civilian response to seeing soldiers on the street and taking out their frustrations on those individual soldiers. But that was kind of a straw man. The soldiers came back and didn't wear their uniforms with pride, not because they were getting spit on, but because they came back to a world where that just wasn't cool, right? They didn't, they didn't wear their uniforms out on the street and get, get showered with flowers. That's very different than getting spit on. Yeah, it's not like nobody's going to high-five you for participating in a war that they don't agree with. Right, there were no marching bands. But the idea that soldiers deserve marching bands was that in and of itself is a holdover from World War II and World War I. You know, that, that or rather from all wars prior to Vietnam, that soldiers came back to 
You get your ticker tape. Yeah, you get bunting on the town hall and and uh, and patted on the back. And a lot of those World War II movies that we see that take a hard look at the war, those movies show soldiers coming back and being subjected to those t- ticker tape parades where they're like, right. hey, I don't want to talk about it and I don't feel I deserve a parade. Yeah, like, stop ticker taping me. Yeah, right. Like that's the jingoism of World War II. The civilians, you know, we saw it in the in um, All Quiet on the Western Front. If we hadn't gone to Vietnam, would we like, would we be doing any of this? Like do, does the civilian populations holding the military up on a pedestal go away or did did Vietnam like provoke that, that shift? If in 1965 there were no nukes and we had gone to war with the Soviet union with Europe as the battleground, I think it would have been just as flag wavy because it would have felt we had a, uh, an enemy worthy of our, you know, our big industrial military war. But Vietnam was this inexplicable. Nobody even knew where Vietnam was in 1961. Kennedy didn't know where it was. And and we went there and we got our asses handed to us by a new form of war, or, or rather a, 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 an asymmetrical war where guerrillas were just had the advantage because they could they could fade into not just into the jungle, but fade into the civilian population. And that was what was so confusing to us. Who do you fight? Hill, this hamburger Hill is a great example. What are we doing? We're not trying to beat the enemy back behind some line in the sand. Yeah. It's so weird to make a jingoistic movie about this particular battle. Right. I mean, that isn't that the, isn't that the thing that clangs the most, but that's the thing that makes me wonder if it is, jingoistic or if it like i don't know like it like the jingoism is is the thing that is making a distinction between our brave boys and a fucked up policy because the fucked up policy is hung on the around the necks of congress and around the necks of co-eds like no military no military officer or or decision maker is given responsibility for this in the movie we never we never see a bad general and having just seen torah 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 that's that's astonishing (laughs) right considering torah 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 is all about dumb generals the failure to anticipate pearl harbor we see we see the the admirals and the state department people making those failures but here we open on the capital and then all we ever hear about is soldiers getting spit on and those are the bad guys, the hippies. The hippies are the bad guys of this movie, which is just like the hippies are the bad guys. Yeah, what do you say about that, Ben? Those are your parents and their friends. <laughs> your mom and dad are the bad guys. My dad was in Vietnam, John. Yeah, yeah. As a bad guy, he was the bad guy both ways. He was a what? he was he was a baby killer and a hippie. Oh, I'm so mad. Damn. I'm so mad at your parents now. Actually, I love your parents and their friends. My parents are good. And they're French-speaking artistic friends. And they donate at, at maxfunkenstein.sex, so you have to love them. What were your parents doing in Vietnam, Adam? Uh, not there. Right, 4 f I bet. Yeah. For being Polish. 
Yeah, my my <laughs> my parents were the long-haired hippie fucks. Were they? Were your parents hippies? I think they were hippies. Whoa! Oh my god! Never would have guessed, huh? No. How would you ever meet Adam's parents? He keeps them hidden. He keeps them in a shipping container in the desert. You're never gonna meet my mom, John. <laughs> Won't let it happen. Does she have a boyfriend? Is it review time? As if this entire argument hasn't been one big review. I think it is. Every film on Friendly Fire gets its own We've custom get out of here. rating system. <laughs> if it's the last thing we ever do. I've never been as tortured as I am now to share that rating system with my co-hosts. Uh, a rating system that my co-hosts will probably hate. If it's anything like any other opinion I've had on this episode. <laughs> I feel like this film does a thing visually that I am shocked to find maybe the first time we've encountered it. And it's the hill that makes it happen. The hill makes the empty rolling helmet happen. Uh-huh. And it rolls and rolls and rolls down that hill. And when the camera finds that helmet and follows it down, you go with it and you really understand like as muddy as the ground is, the helmet's still rolling. That's how steep the hill is. By the time it lands at the bottom next to a tree stump, like that empty helmet is this movie. You might argue that it's empty of intelligence (laughs) or a brain to go with it. But I think it's emblematic of the kind of horror that The Hill suggests. I really like a war film that boils the war down to its, like, it's a distillation of war into its primary component. It's a hill and a guy who wants a hill and the guy who's at the hill defending against the guys who want it. Like, it's super simple in that way. And... All we are are with these soldiers playing the parts of the guys who want the hill. And I alluded to this earlier in the episode. We see so many war films that show us the administration of the war and the powers that make the decisions, but you never get to be that. Why do we see those people as often as we do? Like the only chance that that we would ever have in fighting a war is to be these guys at the bottom of the hill trying to go up it. You, maybe. Yeah. Believe it, John. You know I'd be an OCS the second I enlisted. Are you kidding me? I am grateful for the reminder that this film brings in in our consumption of all these war films, that sometimes it is just a hill, and it is a group of guys sent to go take it, and it doesn't matter the reason. And they should really... Stop asking questions about why it doesn't matter to anyone, even if they were to get that answer. And I thought it was a powerful reminder of that thing. Like, it's sort of a reminder of the insanity of war itself. It's not satisfying. (laughs) I'm trying to be sincere and you're laughing at me. I hope you get this in Monday morning because it's not, if it's late, it's not getting accepted. (laughs) (laughs) I... I don't think it's a great film, but it gave me a lot to think about in a way that good films do. I you think, thought this was a great film until we started talking. 
I think this is this is one of those four helmet films hmm. for me. Hmm. It is simply four helmets. To me, it's a two helmet film, and specifically the helmet that he hits the guy with, and then he falls down, and it the helmet is like squishy. You can see that it's like a foam helmet or something. It's a rubber helmet. I didn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> two rubber helmets. <laughs> yeah, I got two rubber helmets for you. They're covered with soap. <laughs> Please make that your review, John. <laughs> They're my falsies. John's shortest review. <laughs> you know, I have savaged it, but I honestly believe that the the assault of Hamburger Hill is really well done. And to a certain extent, the pretty shallow characterization of the soldiers was enough to get me into that battle with them. And, um, and a lot of their character is only revealed as they assault that hill. And, and it's tough to, to, um, to understand a man's character when he's shouting in the mud with rain coming down. You wish you knew a little bit more about him and the gratuitousness of the, the racist hillbilly and the smart, like politically knowledgeable black guy ending up uh, dapping one another in solidarity is just another <laughs> example of like, no, maybe if this was a TV movie, but I do like the battle so much, but it doesn't redeem it, but I'm going to come in a little above Ben. I'm going to give it two and a half helmets, two and a half rolling helmets. And I'm not even going to cover them with soap. <laughs> All right. And I was astonished by the two thumbs ups that this movie got from contemporary critics. And there's all this, all this kind of chatter about like, well, yeah. full metal jacket came out right before it and got all the accolades. And 100% so, Rotten Tomatoes review yeah, on Hamburger just, Hill. That's just bonkers Crazy. to me. And I think it, what it says is the only people that are watching Hamburger Hill are people that professional are, film critics give this pretty high marks, huh? Interesting. Yeah, professional film critics that have been hoodwinked and duped by the revisionisms. Yeah. The Blind vo- blinded by the lather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't watch Dylan, Dylan McDermott without saying, What a handsome guy. Yeah. He's very handsome. <laughs> Lost twenty pounds during the production of this film. Didn't seem like he had twenty to lose. No, he was probably sweating the script the whole time. He was like, really? I got to say these lines? I just just (laughs) lost another pound. shit. I just lost another pound of my soul. Anyway, two and a half helmets. If you you disagree with Ben's and my critique of this film, please write us at gofuckyourself at (laughs) maxfunkenstein.sex. Oh, man, we got to register that account now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Adam, did you have a guy? Yeah, the Who's Your Guy segment, frequently the uh, least argumentative of all segments <laughs> on friendly, friendly Fire. My guy is the camera operator during the interaction between France <laughs> and the TV reporter because uh, he never stops rolling, even though like, we know the reporter is the target for France's ire. But at any moment, you feel like there's going to be a hand into a lens and a camera into the mud. But yeah. but he is so still 
and so invisible. Beautiful ingenue zoom lens is going to get messed up. He knows what he's doing. He's not going in for a close-up at that point. He's part of what Franz hates, and yet he's not the target of him in an interesting way. He's every bit as as culpable in that moment. But that guy, uh, that guy blended right in. I could get with that. He's not going to make himself a target. No, 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 that's you. We never even see his face, really. No, sure don't. I mean, he's on the battlefield, but he's he's being told to get the fuck out of his uh, area big time. He better not think that he's anything different from the reporter. That would be a mistake. He's the exact same guy that caught the uh, the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. That guy. Yeah. It's just that guy. We never know his name either, but. Yeah. I wanted to be Galvin because that guy had great abs, but uh, I'm going to be anonymous camera guy instead. What about you, Ben? <laughs> uh, my guy is Doc. He really is your, he really is your guy. <laughs> it could only ever be Doc. <laughs> it's you, basically. Yeah, it's me. It's me in the movie. I was only interested in this movie when he was on screen doing something. And when he was off screen, I, the movie lost me. So, you know, just think Courtney B. Vance, more of him, please. Hollywood, if you're listening. How about that moment the helicopter comes in to pick him up? Helicopter's right there. Doc doesn't make it to the chopper. Except for you don't know where he is in the queue, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was still alive enough to give a pretty impassioned soliloquy, but yeah. not quite alive enough to stay alive. <laughs> not quite alive enough to get all the mud off of uh, his jump boots. What you want to be in a war is alive enough to stay alive. That's right. It's just a little <laughs> bit more alive than he was. See, that's like an Eden speech, John. Eden <laughs> should have said something like that up top to the to the FNGs. <laughs> Fill out your forms, brush your teeth, be alive to stay alive. <laughs> stay alive enough to be alive. You know, Courtney B. Vance is married to Angela Bassett, okay. which in and of itself is a career highlight. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can get an Academy Award just for that. <laughs> Who's your guy, John? Angela Bassett? <laughs> <laughs> My guy is whichever member of this production secured the use of those two National Guard F-4s in the making of this film, because that was a lot of paperwork. Plain regular. That guy had to go figure out how to get the Air Force in some capacity <laughs> to loan him these two airplanes to make a movie where almost everybody dies. Not exactly like done with the cooperation of the Department of Defense. Type no, of like, movie. so do you see our recruiting numbers <laughs> increase after this? You think, you think that's going to happen? This Can is, you promise anything? This is not a recruiting video. And the thing about all those Hueys is that you can buy a Huey pretty much anywhere. We saw that. We've seen that in a couple of films. Harrison Ford goes and buys a Huey uh, with CIA money. Yeah, he, he cuts a check. With his, uh, with his business card. That's right. And uh, we saw... We saw uh, we saw a helicopter get purchased in that drug heist movie that we did for our for our bonus feed. Somewhere around here, I have a, a box full with like 500 business cards that say Benjamin R. Harrison, Deputy Director, <laughs> Intelligence, CIA. <laughs> let's go buy some helicopters. Yeah, but you, let's go get some. You cannot I can just, get us a fucking fleet of them. <laughs> let's get 50 helicopters and make our own Vietnam movie. <laughs> but you cannot just go buy an F-4. 
and you cannot get, buy an F4 and then have it streaking over the Philippine jungle. And they may have the been- Second Amendment says I can, man. <laughs> <laughs> they may have rented those from the Philippine Air Force, but even so, that's a big ask. And, I, and that is one of the unsung heroes of this film, whoever that was who yeah. got that job. That guy was Buku Dinky Dow. He was Buku Dinky Dow. <laughs> I hope I hope that Wrangler, I hope that production assistant went on to great heights in Hollywood. Yeah. It takes a show like Friendly Fire to recognize the true heroes <laughs> of a war film production. So we salute them, F4 That's Wrangler. True. I never forgot him. Where's his poem? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Another great question to ask might be what our next movie will be. Oh, here, let's go. I hope it's good. Come on, Magic Die. Yeah. Adam's really disappointed in me. And I brought him donuts this morning, but it's not enough. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. That was pretty great. Okay, here we go. Maybe he's uh maybe he's crashing on the sugar. Maybe that's why he's so cranky. You know, I was really cranky when we uh recorded our Alexander episode and I'm Oh, do tell. Yeah, I feel like I, I owe you guys an, <laughs> I think, an apology. I think everyone for, knows that. <laughs> <laughs> you came for out of the gate on that one. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to say I'm sorry for being such a <laughs> such a sourpuss. We were like, how's it going, Ben? And you were like, how's it going? How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here, here we go. Dice roll. Ooh, it was it was bouncing back and forth between fifty two and forty six, but it landed on forty six. Forty six is a World War Two film from twenty sixteen, directed Whoa. by Sean Ellis. It's called Anthropoid. <laughs> what? Anthropoid. Say what? Based on the extraordinary true story of Operation Anthropoid, the mission to assassinate SS General. Reinhard Heydrich, the main architect behind the final solution, and the Reich's third in command after Hitler and Himmler. Anthropoid. Wow. Got Killian Murphy, Jamie Dornan, famous actors. All right then, it's one of these World War II movies where they're like, "Well, we've run out of plots." Cumulative worldwide gross of five million dollars. So <laughs> a very tiny, <laughs> tiny little movie. Well, I gotta believe that a reason for its unpopularity is that title. I think you gotta do better than Anthropoid. <laughs> the people that went to see it thought it was gonna be Alien vs. Predator. Probably thought it was gonna be a Human Centipede <laughs> sequel. <laughs> oh boy. The tagline is, Resistance has a code name. It's Anthropoid. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they yeah, they triple yeah. down on it. Yeah, it's just two hours of people using the code name and the recipient of the code name being really. That's the code. <laughs> we couldn't have done better than Anthropoid. Was the code come up with by like a third string sci-fi novelist, <laughs> self-published? <laughs> yeah, this really feels like Vanity Press here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, in the meantime, we'll leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's. So, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Absolutely. Listen to me.
Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.